1 Samuel chapter 11, and we will begin. Father, we thank you as we open up your word this evening here and Wednesday night uh, as we are in uh, the first Samuel. Father, we ask you by your power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us this evening. Bring back to memory the things that I need to share, things that we need to hear, things we need to know. And we always trust in you. Trust in you and what you have for us as we partake of your word. May it not only just be things we hear, but things that we take into our hearts, Lord, and mold us and shape us. Thank you and praise you for the evening service here in Jesus' name. Amen. We see the Lord responded to the Israelites' unbelief in the previous chapters. Their unbelief of wanting to see what the world had to offer and wanted that world to be in the nation of Israel as well. They wanted to do what the world around them, and that started in, in kind of intertwining and integrating with God's people because they did not kick out all the enemy. And they saw that the local nations all had a king, a king that they could go to, the king they could be held responsible for, a king who would come and help them save them. A king it seemed to always seem to be the one that thinks if we just get the next king, it will be all better. If we can get a king, it'll be all better. If we can get a new king, it will be all better. And it's just this whole mindset. Well, the nation of Israel never had a king. God was going to appoint ultimately a king. It's going to start with David. Ultimately, it will be our King Jesus. But they weren't patient. They weren't content. They weren't willing to recognize and acknowledge of what God had been doing their whole life. And then that wasn't enough. They had to bring judges in during a period of 500 years or so to be able to judge rightly according to God's word and God's direction on these men he rose, uh, raised up and a couple of women raised up to judge the nation or to be a voice for God to share what God is telling them to share with the nation of Israel to get them on track. It typically was raising up a judge to then also be a, a somewhat of a warrior to say, this is what we need to do. God is going to tell us to go do these things and God will lead us. And it was just that voice, that judge that God used. And here we see Samuel, the last judge, being uh, demanded upon by the people that they wanted a king like the rest of the nations. So Samuel turned to God wisely god what do you want to do with this and he says listen to the people let's give them what they want in their hearts even though it's not good we're still to give it to us because that's what they desire that's what they want and god was going to use this time to teach them it's much better to have god than have a man rule over you and so what happens is they get a man named saul Benjamite to be raised up to be in this and here we see in chapters 11 and 12 and going on is that transition of leadership from Samuel to Saul's leadership and uh, and see how it plays out and the lessons learned from here because how sad it is that God's people trusted a man a man of clay who they could see and admire and oh heads and and uh, shoulders above everybody and the best looking guy out there. Oh, he's just going to be a great poster child, a poster king for our nation, other nations to envy our king kind of moment because our king is so much taller and bigger and stronger and better looking and on and on and on. What, what man goes based on sight and not based on the heart? Yet they would not trust the Lord. That's the biggest emphasis. They trusted in man more than they trusted in the Lord who through the nation's atrocity and had proven himself over and over his power and his wisdom and his provision on their behalf for the whole, their whole nation, for the whole history of Israel. And here we see in his grace, God gave Saul an opportunity 
to prove himself and consolidate his authority as the transition of leadership is taking place from Samuel to Saul. And it starts here in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 here. And then Naash, the Amorite, came up and encamped against Jebesh, Gilead. And all the men of Jebesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Amorite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. <laughs> That's a steep little peace treaty that they were trying to work out. I'll give you a little bit of land, I'll give you a little bit of land. No, 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 no. You're asking the old, the old adage, you're like, wow, you're really wheeling and dealing with me. You almost like want my right hand. No, I want your right eye. You want your, my firstborn or something. No, not your firstborn, just your right eye, literally. Incredible negotiations here. Why? Because we see this man who was a leader of, this, of the Amorite here, that was a leader over the Amorite uh, army, who was surrounding Gebesh Gilead to overthrow them, to conquer them. But he didn't want to kill them. He wanted to put them into slavery. So he was giving them a chance to surrender. And they were trying to, get the, you know, the, the Israelites thought they could negotiate with this guy and get some kind of condition where, all right, we, 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 we'll work this out. We'll make a covenant with you, a peace treaty just to serve you. We'll serve you. Just don't kill us. Don't hurt us. Now it's interesting, who is Nahash or Nahash the Amorite? The Amorites were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. We see that in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. So that's where we pop up here. These were related to the Jewish people. They're ready to conquer. And wanted to take out their right eye. What a great relative. Distant relative. What a great relative. What power and prestige and all these things will do overcome even, even the bloodline. But they encamped, meaning they, this, this encampment, if you know the name here, Nahash, it means serpent or snake. So along with his army, he surrounds this Israelite city, a city about 50 miles from Saul, King Saul's home. And it was an Israelite town on the east side of the Jordan River in the territory given to Manasseh. And it's this man, simply by doing this encampment around, he made his demands very clear what, the, what he expected. And that is, we are going to, you're going to save your life by giving up your eye. Why? Because if I can take out the, the eye of, of the people, then the archers and the, the swordsmen and stuff, they can't have the depths of provision. They cannot see and fight appropriately. They would be weakened. They would be humiliated among all the other nations. You lost your right eye and you didn't even fight. That's the covenant. That's the deal. You surrender to him or you lose your right eye or you will die. But notice the people didn't. Instead of humbling themselves before God and confessing the sins that had brought them into this trouble, they put God altogether aside and then they started thinking they could negotiate themselves with the enemy. They were experiencing the side effects of their sin and their careless living and their lowering men's spirits and sapping courage and discouraging righteous efforts because they were going to come in and make these people, these Israelites and Jebesh Gilead, so depleted, so of nothing, it would have a rippling effect across the rest of the nation of Israel. And I think that was their intent. We'll start with you, the weak one. And once we get you and humble them, take your eye out, then we'll go down and we'll, we'll just wipe out the rest of Israel. But when Jabesh Gilead asked the nation for this covenant, they asked for a time or a delay because they wanted to have something they needed to ponder on here. You just don't sit there as leaders. We see in verse 3, and said, And the elders of Gebesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, 
we will come out to you. So they tell him right up front, hey, wait a minute, this is not a good covenant. This is not a good deal. We don't want to lose our eye. We don't want to die ourselves. But we're going to, we're going to hold on. Okay, will you hold off from coming and attacking us for seven days? Why did Nahash wait for seven days? Why would he even give them an opportunity to try to go get an army together to come against them? They could easily come in and wipe them out because they obviously weren't willing to fight just themselves. They knew they couldn't take them, must be. But notice here, he says, hold off for seven days and then we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And if no one comes to our rescue, we'll come out to you. Meaning, we will preserve our life by coming out and you can take one of our eyes. Our right eye. So why did they, why did they do this? Because I think they were so focused, these people, this, that Nahash was so confident that no one was going to come to the rescue. And they find that, that there was just so much disunity among Israel. They were just divided and conquered. There was no one going to come to be able to save them. And second, allowing the message to go through all of Israel, he made his name even bigger. Nahash now is a, a prominent name in all the land. He was increasing his notoriety his in, in stature, and he's, he's out there making sure everyone knows how powerful this man is. And he would put this, this reputation of fear throughout the whole of nation. So he was hoping that they would do that, and it's exactly what they did. Now, if you remember, if you remember this, this group of Israelites, Jabesh, Gilead, Judges 21, verses 8 and 9, it's interesting because in the past, nobody from this place, Jabesh Gilead, responded to the call to arms when there was a civil war among Israel, when the issues were divided and conquered and the weakness, and, and they, they never even responded to come to the rescue of all that chaos that was going on, that wickedness of Gilead and Benjamin. They would not even come and show up to fight and to help. But now they're turning around saying, we need help. Now they're going to ask everyone for their, everyone else's help. I believe maybe Nahash would say, no, no one's going to come to your rescue. You abandon them in their time of need. They're not showing up. So what happened? Verse 4 and 5. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. The king of Israel is in the, in the field taking care of the, the, the herd? What? And Saul happened, just happened to hear. And Saul said, what troubles the people that, that they weep? Remember Israelites, when they were mourning and stuff, they were loud and they were all weeping and crying. There was, no one, everyone knew you were lost something. They were grieving over something in that culture. And they told him the words of the men of Jebesh. They were spreading the word. People from Jebesh just came and said they're going to die or, or have their eye, eye plucked out unless because Nahash is coming, the Amorites are coming to wipe them out. And as they spread the word, these messengers, it just happened to be Saul was in the field working, even though he was king. Remember, he wasn't a publicly announced as king. He was privately anointed and God appointed him to be king, but it had not rolled out yet. It wasn't official yet. People heard of it and saw it, but here Saul was doing and going back because there's no formed government yet. They didn't have a government yet. They have no order and structure yet. And they weren't even used to having a king. They've never had a king. If they had a trouble, they went to the judge and said, here, rule rightly. Oh, we have an enemy coming against us. What should we do? Well, let me go to the Lord and let me ask it. We'll see what the Lord wants to do to go and conquer the enemy. But now we have a king and everyone's like, what, how do you make that transition if you don't know what to do? And here's Saul going, I'm not sure what I'm to do. I'm a king. I'm anointed by God to do this. But I'm going to keep providing for my family and keep, you know, doing the fields. But we see here, the word gets to Saul's ear for sure. No doubt God wanted to make sure he heard this. 
And then the Spirit, verse 6, of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So what happened? So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his ox, oxen. Ooh. <laughs> the king made a very strong decree right here. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. I would hope so. And they came upon with one consent. They were in unity. Yes, in unity, consent. That when we numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So 330,000 uh, of men came from out to Israel at this point in time, in this short notice, and they came together. And it, because why? Because the Spirit of God came upon Saul, gave direction and clarity, and everything was starting to line up. Unity started coming together. Why? Because they had a common enemy. It wasn't against each other any longer. It was now the common enemy was Nahash the Amorite and the Amorites that were coming against Jabesh. It was the time for Saul to act. And it was a time to see the people to see that God was acting with him and directing him. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, but it did not come to entertain him or to thrill him or to just give him goosebumps. No, it came to equip him for service that God called him to do and already anointed him to do. And equipping him for service so that he could do something for the Lord. And this is always God's pattern. He doesn't want us to seek the Spirit selfishly, but to be empowered and used by Him to touch others. Because there's a calling that God is calling us to serve God in that capacity, whatever it may be. But with this word, as a leader, and when you have a heart for God's people, as a leader of God's people, you must have a heart for God's people. So when you see God's people being attacked or threatened, there should be this a great arousal of anger, as it did here in Saul, the righteous indignation, that righteous concern that should flood a leader of God's people. And if it does not flood God's people's, uh, the leaders of God, the leader is not flooded with his righteous anger when they see people coming against God's people. Then that's not a leader of God's people. Always a leader of God's people will have a heart for God's people when they're in trouble or when things are going well. They celebrate and they will also have great concern. And we'll fight for God's people. That is a true leader God's called for his people. Not someone when things get difficult, when the wolves show up, they take off running. When things are difficult and there's nothing where they can keep, as leaders, take from the people and, 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 and just take off because there's nothing from the people they can get any longer because they wiped them clean. That's not God's leader. Saul wasn't running from this challenge. He was actually going to lead with God's leading and empowerment to go into battle to take care of God's people. And the, sure enough, the fear of the Lord, that awness, that awesomeness, that fear of God, we need to follow God's, uh, God's moving in this direction. We need to do this. And 330,000 men rose up. When the cause is right and the need is desperate, it is wrong to do nothing. Doing nothing in such cases is sin, the Bible says. And when it comes to the sin of doing nothing, be sure your sin will find you out. We saw that and say that Numbers 32, 23. When we see these things and we do nothing, that is sin. 
when God's called us to actually go into battle and to fight what's going on. And he made it very clear, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, Saul's inclusion of Samuel implies that he wasn't fully confident. He wanted God's man with him as well. Remember, Samuel never really stopped being a judge. Nowhere in the scripture says Samuel stopped being a judge because now Saul's a king. He was still a judge. He was still God's man, still could be used by God. He was just stepping back from that main leadership role and now a supportive role for Saul, who's now king. He didn't say, that's your problem. The people wanted you. I'm done with this thing. I'm out. It's good luck. I'm heading to the beach. I'm heading to the Mediterranean. You can find me there. No. I will take and be second to support you because now God says you're going to lead. But notice Saul's bloody threat worked. I cut up this ox and I sent it out to make sure you know if, it's, if you don't follow and come and support, I'm going to do that to you. Your ox, it's, yeah, the, the old ox flesh came special delivery to them. They knew without a question that the Lord was saying, you will be involved, you will, you'll be on the attack here. And they knew the fear came upon them. This crisis for Gibeash, Gilead, we're going to, we're going to, wind up here. But it's interesting is they numbered them in Bezek. If you go back and do a search on that name, it really is not much there, right? Because we see that they mustered up this army and it was only about 20 miles from the Gibesh Galead, so 20 miles away. And they sent a message to the city that, yes, we have got the people. We're coming to help you. But remember, they only had seven days. At what time here now? They're down. The days are counting here. The next day, that not only 330,000 men showed up. They marched all night long. Or, or During that less than 24 hours, they took 330,000 people 20 miles to go into battle. That's a tremendous movement of an army. 330,000 by foot and everything else just going 20 miles wasn't convenient, wasn't easy. But they were there the next day before mid-morning. They hustled. That was a forced march. What happened in verse 9? And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Gebesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Gebesh. And they were glad well, you should be more than glad. You should be rejoicing. Therefore, the men of Jebesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, saying to Nahash, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So they basically a little lie there saying, just buying, okay, we're coming out tomorrow. Be prepared. We're coming out. We're going to come. Meaning, we didn't get any help. You notice no one showed up yet. No one's here. So it was, verse 11, on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. Same kind of a concept Gideon did. Took the army, divided it up in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Amorites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Oh, they were just so scattered individually. There was no power at all to do this. And this was absolutely, obviously, the wisdom of God, giving it to Saul and the power to go in and take care of this situation. And it's through Saul's action and by God's blessing, the victory was total. There was a clear winner here. Nahash's army were utterly destroyed, and the Gibeah Gilead was saved. What happened in verse 12 and 13? Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. What? 
What does that mean? But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Why is that right there in 1213? Because remember, the disunity of Israel. God used Saul to bring the unity together for a common enemy. And when the common enemy was conquered and there was victory, the enemy always then takes that from that victory that you had, that they had, and always the enemy comes in to look to divide and conquer once again. It's the same thing then, the same thing today. You have victory, you have unity, if things are going well, and all of a sudden the, 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 the enemy will come in and look for a way to divide and conquer the God's people. So there is disunity and confusion and all kinds of things. Even now here, they said, those who went against Saul being king, bring them out here. Who they said, shall, shall, shall Saul reign over us? We don't want Saul. Who should have this king? Whoever they were going against Saul, bring them out here. We're going to kill them. And so, wait, wait, wait. We just had unity. We just had, we just had victory. God is with us. God is this. No, no, no. Don't even think about it. No man's going to die here. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. There is a Savior that helped us here. Why are we focused on the past? Why are we focused on the, what went wrong in the past? Why do we dwell on the past? Why do we always look to think we have to have vengeance and, and, and get back? No, no. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. But these supporters of, 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 of Saul wanted to expose all those who went against him and even to kill him. And Saul's like, no, come on here. It's not the time to take revenge on your opponents. Satan has already tried through Nahash to take out your brothers and sisters, but God gave us victory. Now he's going to sit there and look how to find a way to divide the nation against each other, and Satan will attack us any way he can. Many times after using times of victory, that's when he comes in and usually attacks. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord of Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. See, Samuel understood we need to get this unity and keep this unity. Let's take him to a different place. Now let's get him out of this war zone. Let's get him out here to Gilgal. And we we're going to have a sacrifice to the Lord and this peace offering. Keep the unity among the people. Because Samuel knew that not everyone was for Saul. They knew of the fact that he was anointed. There's, God was moving in that direction. And Samuel said that this was God's, God's um, uh, allowance. Not his perfect will, but his, his, you know, uh, his, um, he's accepting or willing to go in that direction, allowing that to happen. His permissive will, it's not his perfect will, but it's permissive will. Why? Because he knew that God knew that through this process, through these problems that's going to come, having a king, the people would, would learn lessons. So here Saul proclaimed as king in Gilgal to solidify, to bring unity, to bring people together, to renew the kingdom of, of unity. It's not like he wasn't already king. He was, again, it was a private, more of a private acknowledgement of God anointing Saul. But now here we see, um, you know, the public announcement and a public unity and bringing together to celebrate the coronation of the, this first king. There was a time of spiritual revival and a national rejoicing that needed to happen. But Saul passed his first test as king. He, just, he really fully got the coordination. And he was already having to lead into battle. 
But it wouldn't be long, as we will study and continue to study here, we won't be long, he will fail. He will fail a much simpler test and lose his kingdom. Chapter 12. Now Samuel said to all the Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my, two, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox often I take, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I am will I restore it to you. Here's a man transitioning out of leadership. It's clear that the king Saul is now the, 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 head, the head, the leading. And we see after the victory of Saul over the Amorites here, Samuel knew that the nation now began to look to the king for the leadership and not to him. And when he said this, he says, I want to make sure that it's very clear on the transition here from me, from, from Samuel to Saul's to leadership. We're going to make it very clear here. Have I, as I'm transitioning out and we're checking the boxes and looking at the, the books and, and looking at a summary of what I've accomplished and what I've did to you or not, I want to make sure the slate is examined here before I transition. Because the last thing I want to have happen here is I'm transitioning and Saul says, man, Samuel left this a mess for me. No wonder I couldn't be successful as king because Samuel left it as a mess and I was cleaning up his mess. How could I be a good king? If that? No, there were, can't have any reasons, can't shift blame. Well, if Samuel wouldn't have treated me like this and taken this and bribes and all these other things, then I would feel like I could trust moving forward with the uh, trusting in Saul as being king. No, won't be able to use any of those excuses. Because he says right out here, I want you to tell me right now, if I've taken anything, any bribes, have done anything, I want to hear it right from you right now before we finalize this transition and I fade away completely out of the, out of the scene here and you're fully looking at it. Is there anything or any reason why I could be condemned for the leadership I've been in? Anything. I'm st officially stepping down here. I'm an, I, I, I'm, I'm an old gray-headed man here. He's a contrast of the new Saul. He's going to be king. And also notice, my sons are with you. They're not in a position to follow me that, that attempted to do that. No, no. They're like just like you. They're no longer in any position of authority. They're just like you, living in the society, in the community. They are in no position of priests or anything, or judges or any authority. Nothing. It's all King Saul, just like you wanted it. So Samuel wanted to be very clear, make it very clear, clearly known that it was not his idea to appoint a king over Israel. This idea began in the hearts of Israel and the hearts of the people, not in the heart and the mind of God. God allowed it. It was his permissive will, not the perfect will, and had directed his execution. He allowed this to happen, and it was the voice of the people that prompted this change in leadership. This wasn't Samuel saying, I've had enough, I'm tired, I'm old, and I just don't want to do it anymore. He let someone else step in. He didn't do, he didn't walk away. God didn't ask Samuel to walk away. He didn't do any of that. He just said, Okay, Samuel, we'll let the people have their heart's desire and let's, let them teach. Let, they're going to learn some lessons here. But he wanted to make sure things were clear in this official transition. Look at verse 4, 4 and 5. And they, Israelites, the people, said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, 
the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, his anointed being King Saul, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. So they just sit there and say, you're absolutely correct. You were blameless. Blameless. Israel knew Samuel was a good, godly leader. He didn't lead them for what he could get from them, but for what he could give to them. And any good leader of God's people is always looking to give. He's never looking to take. And so the Lord is a witness against all of this. Just recognize witness against you and his anointed King Saul this day it's official I'm transitioning you know it's wonderful to get to the closing years of the ministry that God's called you to do you didn't decide to leave the ministry or God didn't you stay until God tells you to move on and here he is at the very end and God's saying yes Samuel and we're going to transition you out it's not how I want it to be, but this is good. You're at the end of your years. This is great. This is ahead of the time. It's ahead of what my perfect will would be. But no, no, it doesn't matter. At this point, it's a wonderful thing to get to the closing years of life and be able to review your life and what you did in the ministry and not be afraid or ashamed of what you did or didn't do in the ministry. May we all be able to say, with our Lord, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And we see that in John 17, 4. Verse 6, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of the Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and served the, the ba ba Baals and Astaroths, but now deliver us from the hand of your enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Bedad and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety and when you saw that Nahash king of the Amorites came against you you said to me no but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king so you see a little bit more clarity here in chapter 12 verses 6 through 12 Samuel brings to light and reminds them of how this all playing out here. They're reminding them of the past. They're reminding them of the present situation. They're reminding them of even in the future of the things that's taking place. We see the fact that Samuel sit there and said, because of your decision, therefore, you have your, this is what's going to be concerning for you. And because there was this threat on Gibeash and, and Nahash was rising up, the Amorites were rising up, it caused all of you to sit there and say, we need a king. Out of fear, you started making decisions out of fear instead of recognizing the Lord your God was your king, your leader, the one who was going to go into battle, the one who had all the strength and ability to take out every enemy like they had in the past. You decided you wanted a, like a king of other nations and, the, and God allowed you to have it. Now, at this point, you would sit there and go, wow, we got our king. We got a victory. We must be set. We must have done the right thing. This must be of God. Oh, how many times I've heard this. 
just because you, the doors didn't fully closed and things seemed to keep going, you think this is of God. When you go back and you go to the basics and say, no, that's not of God. You're, you're turning against what God has called and, had, and how things were set up for him to be king, to be the ruler, and to have a judge to, to, to speak to you. That wasn't enough. You weren't content. It wasn't good enough. You, you ignored all the benefits and all the things you got from all that arrangement of God working in your life and saving you, bringing the promise and all the history of that. You completely forget all the benefits. Why? Because you're so selfish that you want what you want. You wanted the king. You think you're going to be all better off. And they're going to be in deep trouble. Because they're going to go outside the will of God. Completely going and, and recognizing in experience when man is lording over and controlling and taking their sons and their daughters and their servants and, and their land and everything and completely controlling because they thought you had safety in man and versus safety in God. Israel, Samuel's reminding him how. They were sold into the hand once before because Israel should remember how God allowed a disobedient Israel to be dominated by their enemies and chastisement in, in intending to bring them to repentance, to bring them back to God in this through this righteous uh, acts of the Lord that brings people to repentance and brings them back because they're so selfishly want to go do their thing. God says, okay, I'll let you go there until you find yourself in the enemy and you're finding yourself in all kinds of pain and suffering. It will bring you to repentance and realize you were, you need to go back to where you were. Trusting in the Lord. I mean, we also today, we should recognize the chastisement as one of the righteous acts of the Lord. His discipline is just as righteous as his deliverance. And they should remember. Israel should have remembered when they cried out to God. They confessed their sin. They humbled themselves. They repented before him. And he delivered them, usually raising a, ju a judge up to help them be delivered them and bring them out of the bondage. This one of the righteous acts of the Lord, all this, if they would have just remembered and watched from the past and watched the things and learned from it, no, they didn't. But Samuel remembered. And the most recent example, of course, is right here with Nahash, the king of Amorites, coming against you, and you don't even remember even the most recent of times. Don't you remember the last war? Don't you remember how we, the lessons learned and drawing back to God because we needed God because of the enemy was coming against it, and then when, as soon as that went, you went right back into the worldly living and thinking you're going to build your own little castles and do your little thing, and you can just live your life however you want to? Apart from God? Apart from serving God? Verse 13, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. <laughs> Made it very clear here. And take note. The Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both of you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. It's not too late. You can change this foolish thing, decisions you're making. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. <laughs> It's not like you hadn't seen it in your past history in your own family. <laughs> you played these same things out as your, as your fathers did. You'd think you'd learn from that. You said you will never be like your father. In this case, fathers. <laughs> so you had more than one example problem. Yeah, where it says, it, 
Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. Samuel must have said, this is all you. You can't blame me. We've already got that settled. You can't blame anything else. I, you, just said, you can try to blame me as the past leader. You can blame me of all the reasons why you think you're making your choices, what you're doing. You can try it. It doesn't work for God. But here, again, Samuel's making a very, very clear choice. I might make sure one more time. Why? Because Samuel was a leader, and Samuel had a heart for these people. Samuel loved these people. Samuel didn't want them to make this, this, this bad decision. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, do what God's called you to do. Why are you walking away from this? Choosing a man, choosing your own way, choosing what you want versus what God wants. I'm presenting it right now. Important choice. Here's your choice. No, we want to be disobedient. We choose a king. Yeah, okay. God's going to give you one. Just remember, your disobedience, going against the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be pretty heavy on you. You're choosing the wrong path. You're choosing not to trust God. If you choose the wrong path, they can trust God will not bless it. When you choose the wrong path, you go against your rebel, disobedience, and you're shifting blames and everything else, and you want what you want, just remember, you can trust God will not bless it. And when you see this term in the scriptures, as it was against your fathers, remember, Every individual generation is tempted to think of itself as a special exception. We can do it a different way. We know the righteous acts of the Lord, and we know what we're doing. They feel some exception regarding God's correction and judgment and obedience and all these. Oh, we can do and live however we want to live. We can create our own little life. Samuel's like, you're no different than any of your fathers. You're going to be held responsible just like the fathers were held responsible. So you can't think you're going to, you're going to get away from this. God's not going to deal with you any differently than they did, his, did your fathers. That's why he says in verse 16, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may uh, uh, perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Wow. That was, when you read verses 16 through 18 like wow. Did Samuel have, where was his thinking there? I'm sitting there, I struggled with 16 through 18 for a little bit because I'm sitting there and I know he's, he hasn't walked away. He's still a, a man of God that God's using and calling and being used by God. But he, he's, he's, he says, okay, you've made a choice. I've given you the choice one more time. Are you sure you don't want to just stay with it? Let the Lord be king and use me as a judge, as it's designed and continue to use judges and not to have a king situation. Are you sure that's your choice? Yes, that's our choice. Okay, I'll call to the Lord to let him know and tell him judgment's coming down. This is what they've actually decided. Ultimately, this is what they want. Thunder and rain. It brought, that was so must have, that thunder and lightning storm and the thunder must have been so rocking that it caused a fear in these people. It must have been so low and so, so, so powerful that they were probably they were ducking into caves, right? Getting out of the potential hit. But Samuel prayed. This was a praying leader, a praying man. And asked God to send a sign to confirm his word. And sure enough, God right through in. 
But I always sit in there and go, why now? Why did you, this dramatic sign of their disobedience, a dramatic sign that you've gone away from God's will. This is what God's called you to do. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're moving forward. And you've changed with the direction. It seemed it must be okay because we got the king and the king helped us have victory. So every, But why is it after all this decision, now the dramatic sign shows that we're going against God? Because God wanted to teach you a lesson. That's why. I had to come to finally settle that as we're studying this. I had to sit there. It's because God said there was no other way but to allow you to play it out a little bit and then watch the sign of God come in and say, now do you have your attention? Do you now know there's going to be consequences because you've done this? You weren't listening to my word through Samuel, my my man who was speaking for me. Didn't listen to him. You haven't learned from your fathers. You haven't learned from others. You think you're just different and special and you can do whatever you want to. But now I'm going to let you go a little farther so that long enough so that when I, when I bring judgment and correction into your life, you will know. That's what he's saying here. Because God had a purpose in allowing, yes, God's people, people's, the people king, Saul, to come into place. And because it happened in the first days of Saul's reign, the people would have chased or cast him off just as quick as just as wrongly as they asked for him. So they waited, let it, let it go for a little bit so they can get a good feel of this, and then I'll make sure they understand. Because remember, the people were rejoicing, rejoicing. Great decision we made, great decision we made. It must be of God. This must be fine with him. Not with the thunder and rain. one of those those moments as as we see in California (laughs) they never have hurricanes never look what happened to California thank God it wasn't a hurricane it was only a tropical storm but it was enough flooding to get attention huh look at two months ago what kind of decisions they were making that went against God and still go against God. Oof. Someone needs to wake up and see the correlations. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins, the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Pray, pray, Samuel, pray for us, pray for us. Oh, you're asking for prayer now? (laughs) Pray for us, pray for us. Samuel just approved he was a mighty man of prayer, was he not? He asked God, bring down the thunder and lightning. Let's just make sure they really rock them to make sure they understand they're in disobedience. This is a powerful praying man right here. God's man. And Israel knew how much they needed prayer because they came to him because they're in tremendously because they didn't have the prayer life. They didn't have that relationship. It, was, it totally made sense. Let's get to Samuel. He obviously, God listens to him. And Samuel will to pray for them. Well, then maybe he will ask. Why? Well, remember, Samuel's name was what? What did it mean? Asked for. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 2. Asked for, that's his name, Samuel. He was in the house of the, uh, the uh, house of prayer. He was grew up, he was up in the temple. He was, he was embodied in prayer. How important us leaders of God's people are in prayer, are men, men of prayer. It brought him to a point they recognized that's a sin. We're living in sin. We know this is sin. We made a very bad decision. We see it clearly. Wanting a king for ourselves the way we want it, that is sin. We recognize that. Then what happened in verse 20 and through 25? Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all of this wickedness, yet you do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people, 
for his great for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Powerful last few verses here, 20 through 25, because there's some really great lessons here. They recognized that it was wickedness. Samuel said, yes, I'm glad. Do not fear. You have done. He's not, he's not softening it here. You have done great wickedness. So he's not minimizing their mistakes. Yet he did not want them to dwell on the sin of the past. But to go on walking with the Lord today. Yes, you made some really bad things. You've got, God allowed this to get your attention to realize you're just a rebellious, selfish people. And you've come to the conclusion. Now don't dwell on it. Come back to where you need to be with the Lord. Be right. Go back to where God had you to do what your God's called you to do. And move forward here. Don't turn aside. Because if you turn aside and now deviate and make another mistake going somewhere else, you're just chasing after empty things. It's not going to be profitable for you. It's not going to be fruitful for you. Why? Because you're chasing after things that cannot produce anything good and right for you. Apart from God, we can, we, we, we can do nothing here. And you're trying to do it on your own. So Samuel's sitting here telling these people, these Israelite people, if you know that rejecting the Lord and turning aside from him just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And he reminded him, the Lord hasn't forsaken you. Because you screwed up, he hasn't forsaken you. He's, he, he's pleased to have you as his people. Our Lord is pleased to have us as, as children of God. He's pleased with us. He doesn't like the th decisions that we make, the selfish decisions and the, the emotional thinking of a, uh, based on emotion and the decisions we make and, and think this is good and that's better and this and we need that and, and forget the trusting in the Lord and where he has us. What he's doing through us. Being content and recognizing sometimes we have to be patient and wait. But the Lord hasn't forsaken you. He'll never leave you He'll never leave you or forsaken you. But Sam said, But far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. It would be sin for the leader of God's people to stop praying for his people. It's sin. Why? Because prayer is the absolute key to fruitful ministry. Prayer. Praying without ceasing for his people. Because if you pray for the people, that means you love the people. And if you love the people, then you're in the will of God because God loves his people. You stop praying, that means you stop loving. So Samuel made it very clear. I'm not sitting, even though I have all the reason why you're coming. I, I could take it personal that you did rejecting me and you're cr critical and you're watching me. And I'm like, I'm, I'm always being watched and, well, I'm, I'm, and you're always being this and this. And then you reject me and you want a king instead. And all that. He could have gone that path. He didn't. Why? Because he knew he was right with God. He knew he followed God. He knew he was, in the, he was in the will of God. So it didn't matter what the other people thought about him. He wasn't a people pleaser. He was a God pleaser. 
And so he could stand even with all this onslaught. He could say, far be it, I stop loving you and stop praying for you and stop even thinking of a best interest for you. I can't do that because I am a man that God has called to love his people. And a leader in God's people cannot love him and pray for them. They should not be in leadership. So Samuel's his statement is so plain, so clear. It is a sin for a leader of God's people to stop praying for them. It's the most basic of all of the duties of a leader is to pray for the people. <laughs> if it's a sin to stop praying, how much worse must it be to even fail to start praying for God's people? But notice this, and I love this. That's why in my notes I have it very highlighted in my Bible. Notice that. Moreover, as for me, I can't tell, I can't control what you're doing. I, 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 all I can do is do what I know what God's called me to do. He says, but moreover, <laughs> overshadow all your what you guys did. I am not changing what God's called me to do. Moreover, for me. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. Serve Him in truth with all your heart. Don't be half-hearted here. For consider what great things He has done for you. Remember what God has already done in you. He is... He has brought you out of Egypt, your fathers, all into the promised land and all the battles he's won for you. The enemy's coming against you. He's, he's taking giants out of your life. And now you reject him and think you can just live your life however you want to? I'm not changing. I'm just telling you this is how it works. This is what's good and right. This is what I've been doing my whole life, Samuel's saying. And I'm going to not only pray for you, but I'm going to teach you. I'm going to continue to invest in your life. And I'm going to continue to share with you what is good and the right way to, to live for God. Even though you've rejected me, basically, and you want someone else, it's not going to change what God's called me to do. He's called me to teach God's people, to pray for God's people, to love God's people. Samuel wants the people to know that even as he steps back and allows Saul to emerge as the leader, he will not forsake God's people. He will continue to lead and to serve them however God is going to allow that to happen. And it will be not more physical. He's not going to go out and judge. He's not going to do all these things. But spiritually, spiritually he's going to continue to pray and teach wherever God allows him. And he, again, he gave instructions. You need to fear the Lord. You need to serve the Lord. You need to ser serve him in truth. It can't be half-hearted. It has to be all heart. Remember all the incredible things God has done in your life and changing and radically changing your life. Stay away from the wickedness. Stay away from all forms of evil, all, any darkness. Stay away from darkness. Because if you do, you're going to get swept away. You're going to get caught up. And it's going to be devastating. It's going to hurt and everyone around you. To me, these were very encouraging words that Saul is really giving at the very end. To you and I today, is just do exactly the same thing. We should be in awe of our Lord. We should be in just absolutely captivated and compassionate and on fire for our Lord. Serving Him in truth with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not, not 
Two great commandments. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love other people. Love, love your neighbor. Love. This is what we are to do. And these are the two great commandments. All the other things hang on to these two things about loving. Love God and love people. Serve. Because if we lose the perspective of this, everything will become so distorted. What I notice and what happens and what we see in the scriptures, that when you choose to, to not do these things, you'll lose a perspective of God's perspective and everything becomes distorted and many people tend to magnify their problems and lose sight of what great things God has done. No, no, they focus on the problems and everything and everybody else is a problem and, and all these other things don't. And all, and it's always a shift and everything is always a big problem. We've got to get out of this thing. And it's sad because God says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Or are you going to Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your love for us. We thank you for your word and to learn and to grow and to mature, but most uh, deep in our faith, deep in our love for you, Lord. Help us to be men and women of prayer. Help us to be men and women of just faithfully and but most of all, just humbly come to you and just be empowered by you to encouraging us to do what you're calling us to do for you. It's pleasing to you according to your perfect will. We thank you and praise you for this evening and for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.